Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. An age from um, their mid-twenties to about 60, men and women, heterosexual, gay, lesbian, and um, people worked in many different settings. Uh, a couple of people worked at Zen Hospice, Terry worked in jails and prisons, and he's going to talk more about that. Uh, some people worked in soup kitchens. Someone worked in a West Berkeley computer organization that uh, refurbished used computers and brought them to families in West Berkeley that had very little access to low-income families and then trained young people and their parents how to use these computers. Um, quite a range of service uh, opportunities and um, as a group we studied the precepts we sat every time we met and then we talked about some of the experiences that came up as people uh, entered their placements and some of them for the first time doing the kind of volunteer work they were doing um, now we have a wider community of Base graduates, there are about 100 people who've been through base, many of them in the Bay Area. So once a month we have base community retreats, and um, we've had three so far. And we started a newsletter called Touching Base. We had one, one issue came out this past year. Um, as part of my base experience last year, I, I uh, Join Maylee Scott in teaching stress management at the San Francisco County Jail. Um, I did that for six months, working with a group of women prisoners, um, and that was teaching yoga, meditation, and then leading a discussion. And it was a profound experience for me to um, have that direct encounter with with the women week after week, hear something about what their lives were like. My background before that has been uh, in social work, and in the last seven or eight years since I moved to the Bay Area, I've mostly done social change work with my partner, Fran Peavy, some of that in the former Yugoslavia, and some of that in India, cleaning the Ganges River. So it was also good for me to do a project that was face-to-face -face and in my own community. Um, I think I'll end my part, because we, we all want to leave plenty of time for questions, uh, with a, a short uh, quote from Shanti Deva that was written in the 8th century, and it's part of the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Um, it's, these lines, I find them inspiring, and um, they're actually part of an article that Alan Sanaki, who's the director of Buddhist Peace Fellowship, wrote in Inquiring Mind a couple of issues back, an article where he was urging more of the Buddhist teachers to uh, talk about engaged Buddhism and encourage uh, 
Buddhist practitioners to move from the cushion more into the world. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, the medicine itself. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. Thank you. And now um, Terry will sp- oh, Terry will speak, and um, I'll ring the bell just so we have a couple of minutes to breathe and uh, let in what I've said and welcome Terry. As I was thinking about what I was going to say today, I was thinking what an appropriate time this is this week to be talking about social engagement as the craziness in Washington proceeds and in the war in Iraq. Uh, I thought what I would do is tell you a little bit about myself and uh, segue then into talking about my experience in base and then give you a little bit of information about the work I did I've been doing in prisons. All that in ten minutes. Uh, I've begun sitting with this sangha uh, for the past two months or so, and have met a few of you, and have been uh, cooking for the homeless uh, with Clint uh, on the, during the past two months. So I hope to become more involved in a gay Buddhist fellowship. Uh, my own background is that I was uh, at a Midwestern Michigan State University on the faculty there, uh, psychiatry professor for 23 years. And my uh, partner and I decided on the coast of Oregon about nine years ago that we were going to change our lifestyles and uh, move. We didn't know where we were going to move to. Uh, But we decided over a period of time that we were going to come to San Francisco, the Bay Area. And uh, my purpose in wanting to leave Michigan and leave the position I had was that I wanted to deepen my spiritual practice and I wanted to become more socially involved and more of an activist. Uh, I didn't really know what form that was going to take uh, when we did this negotiation, and I was able to get an early retirement from the university, which provided some cushion for uh, making this move and relocation. In June of 1996, we left Michigan and uh, took a six-month trip around the country while I was doing some writing. But... uh, We arrived here in November of 1996 and uh, had a series of of personal issues both of us had to deal with. But uh, I tried to get started in both the spiritual path and the uh, uh, activist path as quickly as possible, but it was delayed somewhat. I'd been sitting and meditating for about 25 years, but I really hadn't been uh, involved with a sangha or community. Uh, consistently, though I'd had several teachers uh, prior to coming to the Bay Area. And I really think that sitting, and for me, a lot of people I know struggle with uh, finding the time or or consistency in their meditation, but for some reason it fit with me. And I've really done it twice a day for 25 years without too many missings. And I really think that it, in terms of the path that I've chosen to follow right now, that it, it provided a seed 
that has grown into uh, the current work that I'm doing in my life. So when I arrived here, uh, I began looking into, having spent most of my life in an academic setting, I began looking into academic programs. What else does one do when that's all you know? Uh, I took some courses at the University of Creation Spirituality with Matthew Fox, and I found, uh, and, and I talked to people at some other institutions, and I found this to be uh, uh, interesting, but not really speaking to me in my heart. Uh, I had, uh, I've subscribed I've been a member of BPF for several years and subscribed to Turning Wheels, so I knew about the base program. And uh, so I finally decided that I needed something more experientially based than academically based. And, uh, and it coincided with Tova's uh, beginning to be the coordinator of base. And I went to talk to her and was still somewhat hesitant uh, but decided I had been doing a lot of sittings at Spirit Rock and, and uh, retreats and, and other things, but was somewhat hesitant. But uh, last fall, decided to go ahead and apply for the program and entered the base program that uh, Tova mentioned in uh, uh, February last of this year. Uh, I really think it was a wonderful experience. Uh, the diversity of the people uh, in terms of, of their their backgrounds and what they brought to the group was really uh, a rich provided a rich experience for all of us I think uh, and the intensity because we met for uh, about five hours a week together and then we engaged in our various service commitments so it really was uh, for some of us almost a full time commitment though there was a range of, of amount of time people spent on that. Uh, the uh, outcome for me was that it really also deepened my involvement with uh, Buddhist practice. And I began sitting uh, daily at the Berkeley Zen Center in the mornings. And uh, it took me a while to adjust to the time because I have to get up at 5 o'clock. And uh, that seemed very early and very disruptive when I first started doing it. But now uh, I'm used to it. And I, I really like it. It feels like a nice container for the beginning of my day. Uh, while I was in base, I began uh, working in the prisons. I worked as uh, uh, at the San one of the San Francisco jails, the new jail on uh, number eight, I think it is. And uh, I've also worked at the FCI Dublin, the women's prison. And I also began, while I was uh, in base, to uh, uh, cook for the homeless over in the Dorothy Day house in Berkeley. The work I've done in the prisons has been just wonderful. It, uh, when I f was first trying to decide what, uh, what I wanted to do for my commitment to uh, service commitment with base, uh, I was really not that certain. I knew that when I thought about doing more social activist work. I needed to move out of, of the type of work I had been doing. Uh, I've been an activist since uh, at least college, but most of the work I have done has been in a professional setting. Uh, I've written and edited uh, several volumes on mental health issues for gay men and lesbians and worked within the psychiatric profession uh, in terms of of major changes in the 
Gay and Lesbian Psychiatrist Group, which now has about a thousand members. It's a very large organization. Um, and uh, have worked with, with uh, in, back in Michigan with AIDS groups and so forth. But it was almost all of that was within a professional context. And I felt like I wanted to work with people who were less privileged. Uh, as a psychotherapist, most of my work, which was very satisfying to me, was, was also with people who were privileged and educated. So I needed to make some other type of contact at this point in my life. Uh, so I talked with Tova, and she uh, and I processed this a bit in terms of my wish to work at hospice, my wish, wish to work with cancer groups, and working in the prisons. And uh, she suggested that maybe working in the prisons would, would give me more of that difference from what I had been doing. So I started these groups, one in February and the other two uh, in March. And what they are is uh, they're a variation on what Tova mentioned, uh, which is uh, I do a meditation group. I do longer groups. I do about two hours uh, in the groups. And meditation and then journal writing and processing. And uh, the one in the jail was with a uh, group of men in a recovery program. And also because the men and the women who are in this group are self-selected, uh, they're really very committed and dedicated to what they're doing. So uh, they've taught me a lot. Taught me. I, I, I've gone out there many days when uh, I've not, maybe not felt so good, and they lift me up. So I feel like they've really done as much service to me as I to them. Uh, I stopped the uh, men's group in the city uh, in November because uh, I'm going to be coordinating a new prison-based program, and that's taking considerable time. Uh, but I'm continuing to do two women's groups uh, at the prison. Uh, I thought, well, let me let me mention, well, let me give you, I'd like to tell you a few incidents that happened uh, in the prisons to give you some sense of the type of, of uh, experiences that the people have, have shared with me. Uh, the most recent one is Maylee Scott, whom uh, Tova mentioned previously, uh, and I do about every month or every other month all-day sittings at the uh, prison with the women. And uh, this past week, uh, we did one, uh, and I was there for the whole day in the prison, and Maylee went over to the camp. And part of it is a silent meal that we take together. And we had gone through, again, an orientation, Maylee and I have, about a month and a half ago, and they talked about how we can't bring anything into the prison uh, because anything we bring in is considered contraband and we can't give anything to the women. Well, I write, I, I have a writing part of what I do, and so I give them journals, and we're still trying to deal with that. But uh, the meal, the women take food from the cafeteria and from the commissary, and they bring it together and share for lunch. And I felt like I usually take some hummus and carrots along with me for eating after I'm there. And so I bring it in during these retreats that we do. And I've done it. This is the third one. And I've done it regularly. So we were, Maley had left, and we were sitting, beginning to prepare for our lunch uh, in silence. And suddenly the door bursts open, and uh, the secretary comes in and says, Take that food away. And 
we all turned around and I, I got my, I didn't know exactly what to do, but I got my hummus and carrots and put it in the cooler. The women kept going with their food. Uh, and the woman called me out and said, you can't do this, you've broken the rules, we have to call the guards. Well, I was getting a little scared at this point, not knowing what the consequences of this was going to be. And uh, I said, Tina, I've met this woman, it's just a little hummus. I didn't bring all this food, you know, and some carrots, and I've removed it from the table. And she wouldn't, she wouldn't stop. She said, we're calling the guards, and they have to come and do their thing. Uh, so I go back in and tell the women what has happened, and they continue to lay out their food. And the guard comes in, and he comes over and says, stand back from the food. <laughs> and the women said, no. This is our food. <laughs> and I said, the only food that's contraband is a little container of hummus and carrots, and I've removed it. And uh, the guard said, that's all? You didn't bring all the rest of this? And I said, no, I've been trying to tell somebody. And he said, I'm sorry, there's been a terrible mistake. And he walked out, and these other people walked with him. I was really shaken up by this because of the demeanor of the people who were engaging us until the guard sort of acted in a certain manner. Uh, so we returned to silence. I read some things from Thich Nhat Hanh about eating in silence. But this was very much with me, and uh, the feeling of being totally not, really not existing uh, in this woman's eyes as she was following the rules. And as we broke silence later in the afternoon, we talked about the incident. And I said that I really was, I found it painful, but I was thankful because I think I knew better how these women feel all the time in the prisons, which is exactly what they shared, that, that uh, this is how they're treated, and this is how they talk about a lot. So ultimately, even though I wouldn't like, I'm not going to take any more hummus back in, uh, I thought this hummus incident <laughs> was really quite, uh, quite helpful for me in having more compassion uh, than I already had for being with them. I think I'm taking too much time, so, but I'm still quickly going to tell another incident because it was very, uh, very powerful for me. Uh, the journal writing, uh, I had read, this is early in the time I did this, uh, did these groups, and I, uh, was uh, I did a uh, I read from Jarvis Master's book Finding Freedom and he is at on death row at San Quentin and is a practicing Buddhist and he writes a, a really eloquent little piece about a chapter about his uh, first day at, in prison in San Quentin and how he had to find his how he closes his find his home in his heart and so one of the writing exercises, journal writing exercises, that I asked the women and the men to do was to write about their first day in prison. And this was in, the incident I'm going to tell you was among a group of men. There were about 12 men in the group at that point. And uh, there was this one man who was African-American and seemed sort of surly and uh, uh, I, I, was a, I, I didn't know exactly how he would be in the group. And... Uh, after they did the writing about the first day in the prison, uh, he asked to read his, which is what we do. We, sh we share the uh, writings if people wish to. And he, he had been in prison. He was 35 years old, and he had been in prison, I think, 17 or 18 years of his life. 
he chose to write about the first day in prison as opposed to the first day in uh, uh, jail or in a, in a youth center. He talked about uh, being terrified because when he was went to prison, he was very young. And he went inside the prison, and he was t- just absolutely terrified. And he, so he was talking to a man. Uh, they were walking together. And they, uh, this group of men were approaching them, and they looked very threatening. And the man described uh, uh, very poignantly, uh, how he just kept talking because he couldn't imagine what to do if these people confronted him. And he kept talking, and they walked through these men. And he kept talking, and when they got through, he realized that the other man was no longer next to him. They had been stabbed. And uh, when he read this, the entire group of men was just speechless uh, and uh, it was very powerful and again uh, it had a lot of emotional impact but I also learned about my own sense of alienation from people based upon their language or their uh, variety of things over and over again the people in the prison, I had several other stories I was going to tell you but there's not time to do that but over and over again they teach me what I already knew that they're not the other which is how the prisons orient us to work with. But they're really people who are in a lot of pain and and suffering. I'll stop there, uh, though I have lots more I could say. But I think my time is more than up. I feel like such a wimp because I've torn cartilage in both my knees and I just can't do the cool lotus position and I'm very self-conscious about sitting up here. Uh, I want to say why I joined the uh, Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement and uh, what my experiences were uh, when I was in it. Actually, my last meeting with that group uh, that I've been in for a year and a half is uh, first uh, week in January because I'm going to join uh, another group in the time conflicts. Um, and and sort of, uh, I've had some thoughts this week knowing that I was uh, going to speak here about how uh, the Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement had affected me in ways that I wasn't aware of until I thought something about it. But um, in uh, 1994, about four and a half years ago, I took uh, disability because of uh, a low T cell count that gave me an AIDS diagnosis, and I was experiencing a lot of fatigue. I also was in a terribly burnt-out job. Um, I was a video producer-director at UC Berkeley for about 20 years, and the budget was being cut, and I had had the same boss, and it was very dysfunctional. I'm sure you all have been there. And uh, they were trying to... uh, moved me into a position that I was uh, internally unsuited for. And it was very, very stressful. And of course, it's, there aren't too many want ads in the paper for educational television directors, and I felt kind of trapped, even though I had made some attempts to get out of there. So anyway, I took disability, and I thought, okay, I'll just, um, if I really retired, what would my mindset be? Oh, I'd take a few trips, do some nice things, and die, because in 1994, there were a few exceptions to that uh, 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 progression, but not too many. So then, 
two and a half years ago in the summer of 96, I realized that because of the new uh, medicines that that might not happen to me, and that kind of um, frustrated me a great deal. I had to completely change my mindset, you know, and some people think, oh, wasn't it a relief? And it was, well, no, not really, because I had the 10-year plan all set, and now I had to come up with another one, and I didn't want to go back to that career. So a big thing was kind of fears coming up about a career. And I had heard about this uh, um, profession called drama therapy, and um, most of my professional training has been in theater, and I've also done a lot of counseling uh, adjunct to that, and so it seemed to me that drama therapy was a cool thing for me to investigate. And so I did, and I, it was relatively easy for me to do, and I liked it a lot. There were certain things about working in video and in theater that I still miss a great deal and that are actually an inhibition to going forward full blast with the other career uh, training. But I was a very, I'm still very fearful about it because I, there are a lot of complications. As you know, if you're on disability, if you go back to work, uh, the private disability completely disappears and I have no cushion if the new job doesn't work and it's something you have to... Um, you have to be your own self-promoter. I can't plug into a university anymore, uh, or I don't want to. And so it's there are a lot of uh, fears coming up. So I sit with James Barraza's Vipassana group on Thursday nights in Berkeley, and uh, he always has uh, guest speakers come in. And I believe it was Tova and Donald Rothberg, is that his name? And um, Jorge, I can't remember who else came in, but uh, about last August... Uh, of 97, they came in and did a presentation on BASE, which was an organization where you brought your spiritual practice towards your uh, your job or your career. And I thought, wow, uh, this would be a great support group for me into to staying with this. Uh, by then, I, had, I I was about to embark on or on an internship uh, with this drama therapy business and. I didn't quite know what was going to happen, and I wanted support for that. So that's why uh, I got into it. There were um, most of the people in the group were in uh, social work type of positions. Donald Rothberg, who was the leader, was a is a professor at Saybrook College, and uh, he's really trying to uh, soften up the academic environment. Uh, which probably needs softening at most institutions, as well as uh, bringing his own agenda into some of the curriculum. And um, it's it's open to that. I guess Jack Cornfield and some other Vipassana uh, teachers have gone through Saybrook, so it's not completely alien to his philosophy. But it's a lot of stress if you've ever observed or been in an academic administrative position. And uh, he, he actually was working on that. There was a woman who was um, actually a writer for the Bay Guardian, and she found that she was writing about things that she wanted to do. She wanted to be an activist, and she was writing about it. And right after she got um, promoted to being an editor, she quit because um, in this group she found that her real calling was not that. So there were some really surprise turns in the base group in, in terms of how people related to their job. There's one woman in our group who has a corporate job, sort of in human relations. And recently she said, oh, I feel so out of it because I'm not working in frontline poverty 
areas or, you know, hardcore uh, burning issues areas. But we gave her a lot of support for right livelihood in trying to be present for her job, and she really was doing a great job in what she was doing. So we had a very broad range of reasons of why people were in there and how it, I could actually see it affect them. Um, what it uh, also did for me that I didn't realize was that I, I approached Buddhism much, much like Catholicism. I would go to a meeting once or twice a week and get a spiritual infusion. And then when I felt I needed another spiritual infusion, I'd go back, you know, the next week. And the idea of practicing it every moment or, or every day or even being mindful a couple of times a day was starting to dawn on me. But I really like the idea of, of having something very specific that is my job uh, plans of bringing the practice uh, to that. And it's, it was a big uh, change for me in, and so that I wouldn't leave my uh, practice at GBF or my sittings on Thursday night in Berkeley. And I think I had a tendency to do that. And every once in a while, the, the real practice would come to me. Um, Donald encouraged us to form our own uh, base groups. And somewhere along the line, I thought it would be really nice to be in a group that was examining sexuality and practice. And David, who's the um, heavy set David who's here a lot and he reads the Dedication of Merit? What's his last name? Holmes. He kept reading the Dedication of Merit. And I was thinking about it in terms of in terms of my own sexuality and my sexual practices, I, w- I would never think to bring the practice to that. I think I had this very deep-rooted puritanical uh, thought that uh, sex was a necessary evil still, you know, and um, that, you know, it didn't quite jive too much with, with sexual practice. I mean, that might have been at the base of it, but I never really... But then I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to bring my spirituality to... Uh, my sexuality as much as I've attempted to bring it to um, thoughts about my job. So in this sangha, we've uh, formed a spirituality and sexuality uh, group. I want to read the Dedication of Merit because I kept inserting sexual practice whenever the word practice came up, and and it made for a very interesting reading for me. By the power and the truth of this practice... May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion and live believing in the equality of all that live. And I really thought that my sexual practice... um, was not so that all beings would have happiness and the causes of happiness. It was very ego-centered. Uh, and um, so uh, I'm very glad we formed this group. Most of the people in the group are um, late 40s, early 50s, sort of in the Stonewall generation, and most of them are actually here. And we, um, I suggested forming a base-type group, but it was too in- Intimidating, really, for a lot of people. Uh, they just wanted to get together and talk about it. So, really, that's what we do. And we try to announce topics that um, are specific. That each, it's a co-facilitated group. Uh, we've talked about attachment. We've talked about uh, S and M. We've talked about aging. Um, 
we've done about 12 topics, and I couldn't remember all of them last week, and I still can't remember all of them. But we do attempt to bring the Dharma formally into our discussion. I mean, it was my desire to bring the practice formally into a discussion group so that it would be a little bit different than a, uh, a rap group that you may be able to find in other uh, community organizations. So it's been, it's been very good, and it's really woken me up to my, my history as a gay man in a very uh, touching, a way that kind of chokes me up now, in a profound way. It, it really made me realize where I was coming from and that there was a whole generation of people really coming from. It became very real, more than reading about it or just marching in the gay pride parade to, to see everybody being so real and for me to be able to be present and listen to them. And yes, that's why I am who I am today. And it's very thrilling. It was very thrilling. Um, so um, we, there's five of us, and we're, we may stay together um, as a group for another 12 weeks. We're going to discuss this tomorrow. Uh, but if anyone wants to start a practice group um, and talk about sexuality, or someone here a couple of weeks ago talked about forming a group around depression in practice, and I'm someone who's had several depressions, and that topic really interested me a lot, depression as practice, or really get in a, a Buddhist group that talks about HIV as practice. I mean, I hate it when people say, well, isn't it a gift because you have a sexual transformation? <laughs> and, you know, my first impulse is to punch them out and say, I'd rather not have HIV and have my sexual transformation. Thank you very much. Um, but it would be kind of cool to have a group that uh, really brought the Dharma to the practice of dealing with HIV, whether one had the virus or just dealing with it in the community. And the last thing I'll say, because I know that the 30 minutes is up that we were going to give ourselves, is that I had an experience where I was a, a pre-test and post-test counselor at the Berkeley uh, HIV uh, clinic, and I worked on it. I worked in it for three years, and someone once uh, said to me after three years, gee, I think that's so great what you're doing. I really think that's very moving and touching. And I had never given myself credit for that, or no one had ever said that before, because I think those of us that are in the... Um, in the middle of this epidemic, either as a helper or a managing our own health, just takes so much for granted. I mean, it, it's such a busy situation. I was really moved to tears because I had never thought of it that I was doing a cool thing or a good thing. It was almost a necessary thing. I was sort of in a panic mode one year. What am I going to do about this epidemic? Well, go do something. So I went trained for HIV pretest and post-test counselor. And I, I would just ask people here, because it's happened a couple of times since then, that to really, uh, at some time, there isn't time now, but uh, maybe sometime today, to think about how you've socially engaged in the world vis-a-vis -vis the HIV epidemic, whether it's helping somebody, whether it's contributing for money, whether it's showing up at the demonstrations, whether it's helping with the many charitable events that go on, uh, your social engagement. Uh, a lot of us have been in recovery groups. You know, I think being in the various positions in recovery groups is a very uh, important way of social social engagement. And I don't think we give ourselves credit for it. You know, I know for a long time I felt very guilty. Oh, I'm not really doing anything. But on examination of a lot of the things I was into, I was satisfactorily socially engaged. And. Um, I'm very happy that I'm noticing that now. For some reason, it's, it's a, it takes a big burden. It makes me feel 
um, in a place of grace that I didn't realize. And I really would ask people, especially people burnt out on the epidemic, because I think when you're burnt out on it, you don't give yourself credit, you stop feeling and stop doing the world's AIDS um, uh, vigil in Oakland was attended by only 75 people this year. So uh, people are getting burnt out or people think that the epidemic is over. And if you want to hear from a long-term survivor how it isn't over with my own condition, you can talk with me afterwards. But it, it isn't over. And uh, certainly internationally, the horror is really just beginning to dawn on most Americans. Um, so anyway, my last uh, statement would be to be a pitch to give yourself credit for being able to hold whatever you've been able to hold uh, in the epidemic and whatever other service that you've sort of intuitively or, in, you know, without thinking have given uh, the gay community or the San Francisco uh, Bay Area community. for me to, to give myself the credit. What does it mean so much to you? you know, like that. Uh, so there's a big backlog of letters uh, at the Zen Center. There's a staff member there, and I'll be glad to talk to you about it later on. And it's a very interesting experience to write to somebody. Okay, thank just you. want to add, Terry, you didn't talk about BAP-Base, which um, is coming up. It's a Bay Area prison-based right. program, and there's someone in that group, Judith McCullough, who's uh, coordinating prison correspondence, and she's connecting with the folks at Zen Center and right. Berkeley Zen Center and the community of mindful living because many places do have a backlog. People, uh, prisoners send letters, and um, so to to um, Buddhist practice places, and we're trying to respond in a more timely 
Yeah, I got, in November, I was writing to people who asked for they, they they really asked for correspondence in June, and the letters are very heartfelt. So, yeah, so it's a wonderful thing to do. Are there other questions or comments, Charlie? Uh, many of you haven't seen me here for a long time. Uh, I've kind of had a crisis with Buddhism a year ago um, at, the, at the retreat in '97, actually. And as long as you're all here, I would like to get some perspective. Uh, my main uh, political work for the last several years has been uh, in working to challenge the global economic systems, uh, in particular the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and the trade agreements that I feel are really at the cause of a lot of the suffering that's going on in the world today. And I've had a frustration, even though I have a lot of respect, and I know part of Boosby's thought, if I remember, and I sit still, and I've been doing it at home, even though I don't come here very often. But I felt a frustration that the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and Engaged Buddhism in general has really been uh, wonderful in dealing with people with AIDS, people in prisons, uh, people who are homeless, but it has not dealt with the reasons people are homeless and with the reasons people are in prison and the institutional uh, mechanisms that are used to keep the rich rich and the poor poor and the police and the wealthy in control of everything in the military. And so I would appreciate uh, just anything you have to say about that. I could say a few things. Do you want to respond? Well, I mean, I think that's a, an issue for all of us to deal with. And, and certainly within the prison, uh, the BPF has a new prison project. And we state in the mission statement very clearly that we want to deal with the systemic issues and uh, that we're all in prison as long as anyone is in prison. And uh, it's hard to do that in a way, but I think we we state very explicitly many of the people who are going to be working in the in the uh, uh, base program that's starting. Uh, we're going to look at, at institutionalized violence and and sort of the underlying uh, causes for this. So we have that perspective. How to enact it? You know, we, we would welcome input. And I think that as we're we're going to be hiring a new halftime coordinator in the BPF Prison Project, and we're very much interested in that perspective. It's right there in the job qualifications. Uh, two things I'd like to add. One is uh, one of the things that goes along with this institutionalized violence is racism. I'm not sure if it's a cause or, you know, where it fits, but BPF has been working with a group of Buddhists that come from many different sanghas that just did a day-long healing racism in our sanghas workshop, and there's going to be follow-up on that. And uh, so that's an issue that we're really trying to be proactive about. And another one... um, looking at some of the causes of the economic injustice. Alan Sanaki is part of a think sangha, that, an international group that's been meeting to look at consumerism and some of the other issues that come from corporate greed and uh, that give rise to the inequities both in our country and internationally. And he was just invited to be part of uh, a group of people from many different faiths 
who were uh, consulting with the World Bank at the request of the World Bank to help them to make their programs more uh, socially relevant. So many of the World Bank programs have increased problems in developing countries rather than helping to solve them. So I think that's a really positive sign, and it was also great that uh, Alan, as director of Buddhist Peace Fellowship, was invited to be part of that. So it's something we're, we're working on. Um, yeah, we, we think it's important to do what we can to relieve suffering directly, but it's equally important, as you say, to look at the causes of that suffering and see what we can do to affect the structures that contribute to it. Okay, I, we, we are running out of time, but there's one hand raising, so maybe we can have one question. Yes, as a beneficiary of sort of direct help, I just sort of wanted to say, because I've got some friends who are, you know, very political, and I think that's good, but I agree with you. I think the two-pronged approach is the way, because I remember when uh, my parents' farm failed in Colorado because of the dust bowl, and we were just going up and down the Central Valley picking fruit and vegetables. My parents were, I was too little. Um, I remember that a couple times when we were very hungry, someone giving us food, that meant everything. Of course, there were systemic problems, but there was a point where, you know, the six-year-old was very hungry, and there were people there to give food. And that's, I think we have to remember that uh, part, too, even though we should also, I agree, 100% attack the systemic issues as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Why don't you why don't you ring your bells to stop your pretend Okay. It's a nice it's a very nice idea. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.